Right, time to crack open the mailbag for another monthly edition of Ask Dre. In this series, you, the wonderful M101 audience, tag me on Twitter and ask me your motorsport-related questions from F1, MotoGP, IndyCar, and Formula E, and maybe even the odd non-motorsport question too. So let's get right into it and get into another round of your questions. Sammy Maxim asks, given the trajectory of the series, barely any overtaking, no free-to-air TV, etc., will FE still exist in around 10 years' time? I'm not sure we're in panic stations here yet, but I am concerned that Formula E has this horrible knack of tripping over its own feet. There's a reason we didn't review Deria's doubleheader here on Motorsport 101. We couldn't justify it as next to nothing happened. Race 1 had Jake Dennis run away as John Eric Verne and Mitch Evans played a 130 mile an hour game of chicken, and Race 2 had Nick Cassidy try to break the field, couldn't, and then we had New Jersey traffic for 20 minutes. The series has problems. On the track, it's what I was saying last year on M101. I think the third generation of FE car has outgrown the majority of tracks it's racing on. I think the cars lack the grip thanks to Hankook's imitation concrete tyres, and the cars are too fast for the smaller technical circuits to pass around without taking enormous risks like Evans tried to do in Diria. This is a problem that can be solved when the series goes to faster tracks in future, but that adds another issue. The series looks like it's growing an identity crisis. Formula E's unique selling point from its inception focused on racing on street tracks and bringing the racing to the people, making elite-level motorsport more accessible in the cities. Ten years later, it now has four full-blown road courses on its calendar, Misano and Shanghai joining Portland and Mexico City. Given there's also six double-headers, it makes me think that the series is struggling to find places to race. And of course, I've been very vocal lately on the lack of a free-to-air TV deal in the UK, one of its strongest markets and where many of the teams are based. They've done the rounds across every free-to-air network from day one, but now you've got to justify fans paying £30 or $38 a month for the same coverage they got for free eight months ago. MotoGP went down this road in the UK 10 years ago, and it's never recovered because there's roughly 80 to 90% fewer eyes on the sport than there was in the Alien era. And MotoGP has had three generations of history and fandom behind it. Formula E doesn't have that luxury. And deep down, I think the series knows that. It's thrown bucket loads of cash at the series to try and get younger viewers in, from collaborations with the Sidemen to sticking chunks in a go-kart, to throwing five-figure fees to Gen Z influencers to make their races look cool on Instagram. It's weird, and I'm not sure any of it is working. At the end of the day, I don't have their balance sheets, so I can't tell you the financial health of the series, and my gut tells me they'd probably need a few more factories to quit before they're really in trouble. But is the series shooting itself in the foot to a degree? I think so. What do you make of the recent trend of sponsorship in F1? The shady crypto fake money services have a stronghold in F1 without the physical product we had during the dubious cigarette era. That's from Cube Jam F1. Short answer, shady as shit. And to be fair to F1, it's not the only guilty party in this. Almost everyone in all rich walks of life tried a quick grift with either funny money, as I like to call it, NFTs, or both. FTX was a Mercedes sponsor and art cars were made into NFTs before Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested. 
Binance was on the Alpines before their collapse, and others hopped on the crypto wagon too. The wild west of money management. MotoGP did too, and football clubs are still at it with their quote, fan tokens. As a Manchester United and Inter Milan fan, seeing them prop these up regularly made my eyes roll. But this is the unfortunate nature of being an F1 team. Unless you have a proprietary product to sell where you can accept a degree of loss making via marketing clout like Mercedes, Red Bull or Ferrari can, you're in it to survive rather than thrive, and the funny money guys were offering quick cash out of nowhere, away from conventional sponsorships and promised huge potential. I get the appeal, but I'm astonished by the overall lack of due diligence. When I was younger, it was the pyramid schemes. Very nearly bought into one from a pair of old high school friends who made a very compelling argument. So it's no wonder a bunch of high profile people who really ought to know better bought the con too. I think Tom Brady's still trying to figure out where his $30 million investment went. If Honda leaves, which engine manufacturer should IndyCar try and get? Asks 10 is red. IndyCar doesn't have the luxury to be fussy about this. They should be taking anyone who's prepared to make the investment. But I think you're approaching this from the wrong angle, my friend. It shouldn't be IndyCar chasing that third supplier. I think the series needs to focus on what it can do to make its current development cheaper. Honda gave the game away when they recently talked about potentially leaving. They want the engine war between themselves and Chevrolet to be based on software and not hardware. It doesn't help that the move to hybrids have been nothing but frustration for everyone involved. Two years late, still no guaranteed debut date and a lot of added expense when manufacturers have clearly invested their engines into series of better returns like IMSA and WEC. Did the series ever truly need hybrid power units in the first place? And if you're new, how long is it going to take to bridge the gap? We saw what happened with Lotus after all. Don't think it's a matter of IndyCar picking who it wants. I think it's a matter of bending over backwards to see who it can convince it's worth the plunge. RN Neandrian asks, what would your ideal F1 calendar be? How many races are there and which circuits are they? Okay, I've had this degree of variation on this question for ages and I've put it off for long enough. Let's tackle it. First and foremost, I'm going to try to keep this semi-realistic in terms of trying to please everyone. This is not an easy task. You have to take on board that F1 has a 24 race calendar now in real life because it wants to make as much money as possible. You want to try and cut down on travel and emissions where you can, and ideally you don't want people quitting out of burnout either. So I've tried to put together a reasonably diverse 20 race calendar that I think covers most of the major boxes to tick. I've not gone into dates because that's ultra pedantic, but here's the basic structure. Bahrain, Australia, Malaysia, Japan, Canada, USA at Cota, South Africa, Monaco, Portugal, Austria, Germany, Britain, Hungary, France, Belgium, Italy, Singapore, China, USA Indy, Brazil. Now I'm going to try and explain a lot of my choices and non-choices here. You could easily swap Bahrain or Australia as open as if you wanted. I really like Bahrain and the racing it provides on a regular basis, and for me, it's earned its slot as an opener. You could flip them either way between them and the traditional Australian opener, and I'd have no complaints. 
Malaysia is back, as I always think F1 had a good home in Sepang. It's a great motorsport country, especially with two wheels, and I get the feeling it's a good fan favourite. And now it has floodlights, you could even make it a night race, and a bit more European friendly if you like. I like the recent move of F1 moving Japan back up to April to avoid typhoon season in the country so it can stay up the top. Yes, we're going to keep pandering to the Americans, but we're going to push hard to give them more of what they actually want by giving them two Grand Prix at their big boy tracks. Kota has become one of the genuinely great all-round tracks on the calendar and pulls a huge weekend attendance, and I think it's time F1 sits down with Roger Penske and thrashes out an end-of-year race at Indianapolis towards the back end of the summer. Who says no? Yes, it's about time F1 raced in Africa again, so Kyle Army is now a small detour on the European block, and we're also going back to the big European big hitters of Germany, I love Hockenheim, sue me, and France, the true home of Grand Prix racing. Yes, Paul Ricard is a bit of a stinker, but I don't think anything else in France is viable. I think France ought to be protected. You're welcome, Ryan King. China is also back on the calendar, but back more towards its original home towards the end because I didn't want it to clash with Sepang being very similar in terms of timings, track layout and optics. Yes, there's no Spanish round because I'm bored of Catalonia's misery and there isn't really a viable alternative. No, you're not going to Aragon, don't pretend you are. Instead, we brought back Portimao in Portugal. They'll celebrate by opening another golf course in the area. And yes, Brazil is back as the finale. Asia did catch some strays here. Yes, it got Malaysia back, but it lost Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Abu Dhabi. Oh no. Anyway... Wesley Sanchez asks, so I am now recently been getting into bikes and bike racing. Thanks, Dre. So what's a season, race, or era of any bike series in recent or past memory that you as a fan would note to someone just getting into the sport or starting watching to explore it further? Welcome aboard, Wes. Glad you could join us. It's an interesting time to be a MotoGP fan right now with the more F1-esque aero era going on at the moment. And I have to admit, the overall quality of the racing has taken a bit of a hit, but there's still a handful of past and present recommendations I have for you. For overall era, you can't really go wrong with anything between 2008 and 2013. I think that's the peak of the alien era where Jorge Lorenzo, Danny Pedrosa, Valentino Rossi, Casey Stoner, and at the very end, Mark Marquez comes into play. These were the five to six best races in the world, going head to head almost every single week. But if you want me to really narrow it down, here's some of my favorite races of modern times. Heref 2005 the race that wrote the rulebook on the ethics of MotoGP combat. Valentino Rossi, Cetacea Banal, and that ending. Estoril 2006. Five men enter that weekend with a shot at the title with two races to go, but it's the surprise of customer riders Tony Elias and Kenny Roberts Jr. that play the role of antagonist with a shocking early flashpoint. Phillip Island 2015 and 2017. Australia for me is the gold standard of MotoGP races and 2015 and 2017 are two of the best MotoGP races ever for me. 2015's heated clash between Lorenzo, Marquez, Rossi and Iannone and then 2017 was a bar fight where a bike race broke out at the end. Two classics. Catalonia 2009. The pass. I'll say nothing more. Styria 2021. Is that rain with five laps to go? 
and Brewerram 2023. And if you want a modern classic, Jorge Martin versus Brad Binder and Francesco Bagnaia in Thailand is proof great racing is still possible even with the winglets. Kevin Walsh asks, how long do you think the post-COVID dominance of European manufacturers in motorcycle racing will last? Probably another few years left in this. I reckoned in previous posts, I'm sure, but my overall impression is that Japan were two to three years behind Ducati on the eight ball when it came to aerodynamics. Ducati shocked the world when those hammerhead winglets rolled up, and when the sport decided to let them have it, Japan just bolted on aero to their bikes and didn't really know how to work with them, while Ducati were developing their bikes with that in mind. In Europe has been faster to react and look for innovation. Aprilia's got aero rakes in Sepang's test right now. KTM were testing out a new carbon fiber chassis at the back end of 2023. Japan's coasted on their reputation for a little while now, and as a direct result, Suzuki's dead, and Honda and Yamaha are scrambling to try and close the gap, don't really know how to, and might lose all their elite riders as, as a direct result. Another way they're going to lose out in this development war. Ducati holds all the aces, and KTM and Aprilia are leading the chase. The Japanese manufacturers might have to tear the whole thing down and start over before we get to the next major regulation change in 2027. That might be where we see a fresh start for the sport as a whole. Toki asks, who do you think is in line for the MotoGP Championship, and how quickly do you reckon Mark will get a dub on the Ducati? I think there's three definites for the MotoGP title, and three maybes. The definites for me are reigning champion Francesco Bagnaia, Jorge Martin, and Marc Marquez. The three maybes are Brad Binder, Marco Bezzecchi, and Anaya Bastianini. Bagnaia's walking in as the second favourite of the bookies, despite being the double world champion and has been awesome for the last two years now. Jorge Martin arguably should have been right there with him in 2023 and fumbled his own bag in the process. And then there's Marc Marquez, who everyone is confident would adapt to the Ducati reasonably quickly. The fact he's solidly mid-table after two days in Sepang is promising. Beyond that, Marco Bezzecchi has sensational upside, but I need to see more before I really start believing he's a genuine contender. Brad Binder is fast as hell, but hasn't won a Grand Prix in nearly three years now, and KTM needs to give him a little bit more. And I want to see what Enea Bastianini can do with a full off-season under his belt. If he's at his 2022 pace, then he'll be a threat for sure. Those for me are the big six. As for the first Marquez dub... Optimally, Kota would be ideal as he's so dominant around there, but the Saxon ring seems a better fit for me realistically. And finally, Alexander Pitt asks, Super Bowl predictions, Tay-Tay-Yay or Nay? Ooh, tough one here. I think the 49ers have the better roster overall, and their skill position players of Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, and Brendan Ayuk are going to give Kansas a real headache. But that Kansas unit has gotten better and better as the season's gone on, and they kept one of the best regular season teams ever in the Baltimore Ravens to just 10 points. Patrick Mahomes has worked miracles of a really limited offensive core, but Travis Kelsey is having a great postseason and is really taking some of the pressure off. If Kansas can get Isaiah Pacheco going, it's going to be a great matchup. I think Kansas takes it 28-20. May the Swifties sing into the night. Thanks for reading, and I'll see you back here for some season previews. Take care.